We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, fit, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And welcome back to the marathon series of awesomeness. Uh, <laughs> we are back with uh, episode four, special episode four, uh, where we are showcasing the work of David Ignell, Alaska author and activist advocate uh, concerning the uh, role of the Alaska Grand Jury, and the last, uh, if you've missed the last three episodes, we, we recommend, highly recommend you get those because they're, they're kind of a preamble building up to the significance of the Grand Jury in Alaska that gives some, uh, some uh, history, and uh, welcome back to the mic, uh, David. Uh, we're getting some good traction, by the way. I, I threw out, uh, we've thrown out all three episodes now uh, preceding this one, and I'm watching the um, the stats and the that 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 chart is just climbing. So hopefully we can make this topic viral across the state and start to exert uh, positive profession uh, positive uh, pressure on uh, our public officials to uh, take a serious look at, at what you've written about. That's, that's awesome to hear, Jason. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm getting the same kind of uh, reaction. Um, lots of phone calls, lots of great discussions, and uh, people are just uh, expressing uh, gratitude uh, for, you know, knowing the truth about the grand jury. And that's what, uh, you know, that makes me so happy because that's what this was all about from the very beginning uh, was to educate the people of Alaska and to peel back all these layers on the onion that uh, have built up over the years and get back to the solid basic core of the Alaska grand jury and defeating the efforts of the, uh, of the government, all three branches uh, to put the grand jury under their thumb. Now you're um, you're getting you're getting uh you, we were just talking before the show you're you're getting some other opportunities to to showcase the book and your research and you were on uh, with Bob Bird yesterday I believe and you've got some other upcoming uh, uh, opportunities for people to weigh in do you do you um what's your next uh, do you have an idea of your next public speaking engagement well, I, there's a there's a group up in Kenai Peninsula um, that uh, has asked me to uh, basically work through the book from a um, kind of like an education standpoint. So uh, we had a meeting last week and uh, we went over, um, uh, boy, you know, there's been so much. I forget if we went over the introduction or chapter one, but uh uh, there was maybe 20 people in the room and another 10 people online. And, uh, there's, there's a hunger for this kind of stuff. And, uh, it, you know, it's fun for me. I, I've never been a professor or a teacher or anything like that. And this book is kind of like a textbook, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little difficult to get through and, you know, we're, we're not mentioning the 270 footnotes, uh, where people can go for even more uh, information, uh, you know, everything that I'm writing about is supported by 
uh, you know, very credible sources, uh, scholars, uh, former Supreme Court judges. Uh, so it's it's all valid stuff. And uh, uh, you these, know, these I, are I not do. these are not Facebook's uh, Bangladeshi fact, <laughs> fact checkers. Right. These these are credible academic, uh, you know, background uh, uh, authorities on the topic. Well, exactly. In fact, today we're we're going to get your the listeners are going to hear a couple quotes from Thomas Dewey. Uh, he was a prosecutor uh, in New York. Uh, he was a special prosecutor that made his uh, claim to fame on on being a special prosecutor for the grand jury. And uh, this was back in the 1930s and. Then uh, he eventually became the governor of New York, and in the late 40s and early 50s, he was the Republican uh, candidate for president of the United States. And uh, he, he got beat by Truman, um, but he's got some great quotes uh, towards the end of uh, Chapter 4 here that I, I can't wait uh, for the audience to hear because uh, uh, it's, it's just some really good stuff. Awesome. Well, uh, so thank you again for joining us. We hope that you uh, thoroughly enjoy this episode and that uh, it answers questions and raises more questions and at least builds your confidence in uh, knowledge about the topic to where you can become an expert and authority as well as you engage your circle of influence, those people that are uh, closest to you, whether that be at work or uh, your church or uh, maybe your poker club, you know, your, your, your uh, Friday night poker meeting. Uh, the, those are so important. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's in the taverns and the cafes where oftentimes uh, public meets that uh, political uh, opinion is expressed and then movements begin. So uh, as a, a great part of that tradition here at Ammo Can Coffee Social Club, we invite you to join the movement. And the floor is yours, David. We, I, I look forward to hearing this chapter. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jason. Just, you know, what you said there about the, the pubs and, you know, meeting places and the taverns that that just remind when you said that it reminded me of, uh, you know, in chapter two, when we talked about how the British government was trying to control the American grand jury and uh, Paul Revere and John Hancock's brother, uh, their form of protest was to refuse to take the oath and to retire to a tavern where they all met and decided to publish their reasons for not taking the oath. And you're, you're exactly right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, without, uh, let me get into this. Um, uh, what I'm going to do here is just give a brief overview here and a quick introduction of, uh, what we're going to discuss in the next uh, half hour or so, and then launch right into the book. So, uh, in Chapter 3, we looked at many different types of grand jury investigations and reports throughout the country from 1880 to 1940. We saw how grand juries were successful in protecting the public from big business and big governments. We saw how in several cases of severe corruption in government, the grand jury was the only body capable of solving the problems. Now in Chapter 4, we're going to focus in on one of those cities, New York City, and how the grand jury repeatedly came to the rescue of citizens. This chapter is fairly short and straightforward. No long quotes. Hopefully easy for listeners to follow. Here we go. Chapter 4. 
Common Law Independence Defeats Government Corruption, a Case Study. What are the most widely documented illustrations of the positive results that can be achieved by an American grand jury applying its common law, investigatory, and reporting powers comes from New York City. For decades, local grand juries there battled against government misconduct, the corrupt powers of Tammany Hall, and the tentacles of organized crime. Where all other reform efforts failed, the grand jury succeeded because of the significant common law power, independence, and dedication of grand jurors who refused to accept existing standards of vice and government misconduct in their community. Even uncooperative and obstructive prosecutors could not prevent the resourceful citizens from achieving their objectives. During the late 1860s, William Boss Tweed and his Tammany Hall cohorts had gained complete control of the New York City government, including judges who presided over the courts and state and local officials that accepted bribes. In 1870, Boss Tweed's political machine gained the authority to issue bonds, gaining almost complete autonomy to plunder the city treasury at will and to hide the rapidly growing deficit. For example, when $12 million was spent to build a new courthouse, half of the bond proceeds went into the pockets of Tweed and its followers. In 1870, a citizen-backed reform movement was unable to unseat the well-entrenched Tweed regime. The following year, a council of political reform was organized, and at a protest meeting, it was demonstrated how the city debt had quadrupled in just two years. However, no lasting opposition of substance materialized from this council. The New York Times took a run at the problem by publishing details of the corruption and bringing to light the various methods by which the public treasury was being looted. The Times reporting aroused the city residents, but the newspaper was unable to procure sufficient evidence to base a prosecution on. A second public protest meeting called by the council attracted a large crowd of citizens who approved resolutions appointing an executive committee of 70 individuals to gather evidence. Although this evidence enabled the council to instigate civil actions against Tweed for unlawfully taking money from the city, the committee lacked the necessary powers to launch a widespread criminal investigation. To this point, the ballot box, a newspaper crusade, public meetings, and a citizens investigating committee had all been largely ineffective against the Tweed regime. However, things began to change after a grand jury began to in investigate. The grand jury's broad authorities to subpoena witnesses and records, made effective by its contempt powers and ability to indict witnesses for perjury, enabled it to obtain critical evidence. The secrecy that attended all investigating sessions enabled witnesses to safely disclose to the grand jury what they knew. The grand jury's first step was to summon the leaders of the Citizens Committee and others whose testimony convinced the jurors that widespread corruption indeed existed. Next, they set out to find evidence against city officials without the assistance of the district attorney's office. 
using their subpoena powered, they summoned witnesses and interrogated them in secret session. To ensure all, por- all sources of information were investigated, the jurors split up into committees of two and three. They went out into the city to visit banks to check on the accounts of public officials. They called at the homes of witnesses who were unable to come to the jury, and they checked on the operations of each of the city departments. In off-duty hours, many of the jurors continued to track down information on their own that could be useful in tracing frauds to the guilty parties. Over the course of three months, the grand jury completed their investigation and returned indictments against Boss Tweed and several others within his regime, including the city's mayor and comptroller. The judge commended the jurors on the efficiency of their investigation and observed they had concluded, quote, one of the most important, extraordinary, and eventful sessions that has ever marked the history of an American grand jury, unquote. Although the ensuing legal proceedings and trials played out for several years, the independent-minded grand jury effectively ousted the Tweed regime from control of New York City. A decade later, the services of the New York grand jury were again needed to battle government misconduct. An 1884 grand jury censured the Department of Public Works for not protecting the city against designing contractors. Their report disclosed that favoritism, extravagance, and waste prevailed in the department to a disgraceful extent. An 1886 grand jury investigated the city council and returned indictments against several members who had sold their votes to award street railway franchises to a low bidder. A subsequent grand jury investigated the private company receiving the bid and indicted its president and other officers. The New York grand jury issued a public statement against the medical directors of a mental hospital after investigating its condition. The jurors attributed the root of the problem to, quote, political jealousies, personal dissensions, and improper methods, unquote. Two years later, a special grand jury reported a great many excise cases that were languishing in the district attorney's office. Their report revealed the situation indicated either, quote, a lack of disposition to prosecute or a lack of efficiency, unquote, by the district attorney. In 1900, a New York City grand jury probing illegal gambling operations soon butted heads with a Tammany-controlled district attorney. Witnesses ordered to appear either disappeared from the city or were reluctant to testify in the district attorney's presence for fear of being placed on the Tammany blacklist. The jurors began to subpoena their witnesses directly, refusing to go through the district attorney. In the matter of a particular witness, the district attorney refused to leave the room when the grand jury foreman requested him to. The jurors then arose and marched to a courtroom where the recorder upheld the right of the grand jury to control their own investigation and exclude the district attorney. During the rest of their investigation, the grand jurors bypassed the district attorney and went directly to the recorder for legal assistance. At the close of this term, the grand jury issued a presentment that severely criticized the district attorney. They they protested that every effort to fix the responsibility for criminal neglect on the part of the 
Police Department had been, quote, persistently discouraged or headed off, unquote, by him, and they recommended the governor to remove him from office. The grand jury concluded the police department's neglect of gambling and prostitution activities stemmed from a direct interest in the maintenance of illegal establishments. A New York judge expunged the grand jury's presentment, but its foreman responded by forwarding a copy to Governor Theodore Roosevelt, who then appointed a special commissioner to proceed against the district attorney. Being the financial capital of the nation, New York City was an especially difficult place to keep corruption down. In 1935, illegal activities generated annual revenue estimated at one-half of one billion dollars. An established organized crime racket existed for most industries, bakeries, barbers, trucking, poultry, and restaurants. The situation was so bad that Mayor LaGuardia threatened to disbar lawyers who represented mob bosses. In 1935, the New York District Attorney gave pretenses of concern by promising to convene a grand jury investigation into the corruption and vice. In addition to illegal, illegal gambling, the investigation was needed to probe a sex trafficking network where women were being brought in from other states, forced to work as prostitutes, and turn over 75% of their earnings to their handlers. When they were arrested by honest police, the crime bosses would bail the women out, give them a new name, and force them to work in a new area. The grand jury began receiving anonymous letters providing names and addresses of racketeers. Subpoenas were issued by the grand jury, but the district attorney's process servers reported the witnesses could not be found. Just as their predecessors had done 35 years earlier, the grand jury learned that to be effective, they needed to bypass the district attorney and his investigators. The grand jurors started interviewing witnesses on their own. The press labeled this exercise of independence as, quote, a striking illustration of the inherent power of a grand jury, which some officials have been prone to overlook in recent years, unquote. The grand jury asked the governor to fire the district attorney and give them a special prosecutor to assist the investigation. They barred the district attorney from their meetings and started drawing up names of potential replacements. The district attorney responded by withdrawing his staff and agreeing to have one of his cronies appointed as the new prosecutor. However, the grand jury refused to accept this substitute, and the governor especially appointed, eventually appointed Thomas Dewey as his special prosecutor. As a special prosecutor, Mr. Dewey was given 10,000 square feet of office space, 20 attorneys, and a squad of researchers. His staff questioned 3,000 witnesses in four weeks. Under Mr. Dewey's direction, a new special grand jury was formed to specifically take on organized crime. This special grand jury sat for four months, heard testimony from 500 witnesses, and issued 29 indictments. Its final report disclosed that a handful of criminal overlords ruled the city, assisted by an army of lieutenants and henchmen. A successor grand jury was impaneled, which picked up the work of its predecessor. It broke open another multi-million dollar prostitution ring involving 100 women and 10 men across 41 brothels. 
the grand jury targeted the managers who exploited the women and took 90% of their earnings. Caught up in the sweep was mobster Lucky Luciano and eight of his henchmen who were convicted on 62 counts of compulsory prostitution. Mr. Luciano had been arrested 11 times before with hardly any consequences. So his ensuing conviction shattered the idea that mobsters were protected from legal retribution. The grand jury broke the back of organized racketeering in New York City. Citizens across the country followed the exploits of the New York City Special Grand Juries and Special Prosecutor Dewey. In 1937, the Reader's Digest publicized the work they had done and encouraged readers that corruption in communities across the country could be attacked in the same way. The Grand Jurors Association in New York began to receive inquiries from people throughout the United States, including some who had been previously unaware that such a powerful institution like the grand jury existed. It is likely that some of the delegates to the Alaska Constitutional Convention had read these accounts and were familiar with the success of the New York grand jury in protecting the public's welfare. And that's the end of chapter four. So in Alaska, we have a grand jury and how effective has it been over the last 30 years? Uh, the investigatory grand jury is, from my information, and I've been researching into this, is, is zero. I, I don't know of any cases uh, where the grand jury have, I mean, I, I asked specifically uh, the Alaska court system uh, for records of grand jury investigations and reports. And I was told by their general counsel that they didn't have that kind of a database. Um, I checked with the, uh, uh, with the Juneau uh, court administration and they didn't have any records either. So, uh, you know, we, we went up until that Sheffield investigation, grand jury investigations were a common thing in Alaska, uh, you know, all over the state, you had grand jury investigations. Uh, you know, one, there was a couple jurisdictions, I think in Anchorage where they did an annual audit of the local prisons. And so, um, you know, there seems to be quite a bit of grand jury activity up until the Sheffield investigation. And, and then there was some more up until the, uh, the, the Anchorage investigation of the, uh, sexual scandal at Bartlett high school. But then after that, I can find no evidence or I haven't been able to find anything of, of subsequent grand jury reports. Well, and, and one of the things that David Haig has, has been clear to point out almost every time I talk to him is that for the last 30 years, there is a there is an investigator, when we're talking about judicial matters, uh, and the grand jury can investigate much more than just judicial conduct, but that in the case of our court system, that the person tasked with uh, investigating complaints against judges uh, has not changed for 30 years. That it's been the same woman, Margaret Greenstein, uh, I believe is her first name. Uh, I know her last name's Greenstein, but uh, that uh, she has, has not, uh, uh, that there's been no one else doing that job but her. And I think if I'm 
representing David's numbers correctly, uh, David Haig, that something like 8,000 complaints have been filed during the time that she has been um, at the helm and, and that very little to nothing is, has happened. And so uh, do we see the rise of another boss tweed, but in a sort of a sourdough expression, as it were, here in well, Alaska? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, you know, I, I, you know, the, the statistics on the lady's name is Marla Greenstein. Marla. Or Marla, Greenstein. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know anything about her. Uh, I've never spoken with her. Uh, you know, these statistics that David Haig uh, has talked about, you know, I haven't verified or anything. But, you know, that, that name uh, is familiar to me. And I'm looking at it on my screen right now. And uh, she was, uh, you know, wh- when I talk about this unconstitutional rule 6.1, uh, that came from the Alaska Judicial Council. Uh, she was she was uh, part of the staff of the Alaska Judicial Council in 1987 when they issued this report. And this is one of the things that I want investigated in my special grand jury uh, request in Juneau is I want to know how this 6.1 came to be because there was a couple year gap where uh, I think there was a lot of internal uh, debate among the Supreme Court judges, among the five Supreme Court judges. Uh, I think they all knew that it was unconstitutional, uh, but they passed it anyway. And, and Marley, so Marla Greenstein is on this report as a research attorney, and that's 1987. So if she's been uh, in this position now for about 30 years, that means that after this, she, she was put into, into that position. So kind of an interesting uh, connection there, but the correlations are interesting. Correlation doesn't always mean causation or be connected to causation, but uh, it does make one wonder. Yes. And and that's what, you know, that's why, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I can connect dots. I mean, that's a lot of what I do is I try to connect dots through analysis, but you know, I, I don't have, you know, I don't have subpoena power and at the very, you know, there may be nothing there, but that's what a grand jury is, is supposed to do is to investigate and find out if there's anything there or not. Now the, you know, I, I get, you know, when I was reading chapter four, I, I get goosebumps because when, when you read about all the difficulties that the New York grand jurors had with district attorneys. We've got the same thing in Alaska and they found ways to overcome it. Now I could make the case that it might be even more difficult that the corruption may be even more extensive in Alaska because in all the, in most of these stories, it seems like the New York grand jurors had judges that supported them. And, you know, this goes into my, you know, whole different topic. You know, I'm calling for a constitutional amendment on the way that we select our judges because we don't vote for judges. So now we have these judges, you know, David Haggs run into it in Kenai. I'm running into it in Juneau. And I'm hearing that there's other places throughout the state where the judges aren't accountable to the people. So they go ahead and and they don't cooperate with the grand jury. So, you know, we've got this systemic problem in Alaska uh, that we need to overcome. 
But, you know, the, the, this case study of New York chapter four, uh, for me, there's just so much hope in it, you know, because it, 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 it tells all of us that, you know, what we're facing, you know, is, is different. It's a different shade of, of what grand juries have seen and overcome in the past. And so if we're resourceful enough, we can, we can, we can do this. Well, we can, we can, go ahead. Well, one of the things that I want to also highlight mention is, you know, I've, I've, Several times I've encouraged our listeners to share this uh, this podcast with others, and oftentimes, you know, I'm I'm very uh, conservatively oriented in my own political pursuits and, and interests, and so I have a lot of connections through different Facebook groups and networks and things, and and I push out notices to folks about the podcast to to that population, but really, this issue should be a nonpartisan issue. It should be something that appeals to everyone in in our American society here because. You know, uh, that phrase, with liberty and justice for all, uh, despite your, your race, religion, creed, you know, political affiliations, whatever, that should stand. And anyone who looks at this situation and reads the Constitution and doesn't get a little offended by what they're hearing about uh, how the courts and the bureaucracy have eroded this right— uh, should be should be alarmed and and uh, we should be sharing this with everyone re- despite uh, their their party affiliation because ultimately um, you know people just oftentimes don't pay attention to things until something happens to them and uh, you know you don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation when you find yourself unexpectedly in the crosshairs of the bureaucracy or the courts. And, uh, and then there's no recourse for your defense. Yeah, Jason, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up this aspect of nonpartisanship in grand juries, because it's one of the critical elements of a, uh, a viable, uh, grand jury. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to get into this in much greater detail in, I think it's chapter 10 or 11, where I talk about the Sheffield grand jury investigation and uh, how how important it ended up being that it was a bipartisan uh, collection of people, because in that case, uh, Grand Juno grand jury is investigating a, a Democrat government or a governor. And uh, the grand jury was criticized. You know, there was a lot of rumors that were spread by, you know, obvious actors. And uh, they were saying, oh, this is a Republican cabal. And they're just out to get, uh, you know, a Democrat governor, you know, before an upcoming election. And what was great about that case uh, is is after, after everything was over, after the Senate uh, gave uh, the governor a pass and everybody went home, the Fairbanks Daily News or the Fairbanks News Miner uh, interviewed nine of the 15 grand jurors. And what they found out uh, was that of those nine people, uh, one was a Democrat, eight were independent, and all nine had voted for Sheffield. And so right there, that put to rest, you know, it gave, it gave the grand jury decision credibility. 
So, and, and the other, and we're going to get into this in, in a couple chapters where, uh, you know, the book talks about how grand juries is, is a way for citizens to get engaged in government again. It's a way for people to sit down at a table and communicate with each other and, and to keep politics out of it. I, I mean, you, you, you look at the state of our legislators, legislatures uh, across the country where the left and the right are, are so bitterly divided, uh, none of that comes into the grand jury room. It's, it's, it's a temporary body. It's non-political, and it's going to be people from different ways of life. It's going to be your neighbors. It's going to be, you know, people that you go, you know, their kids go to the same schools, and you have the same community interests, and you get down and you start talking with each other. And, you know, people start finding out, hey, you know, the Republican saying to himself, hey, you know, this this Democrat guy, you know, Matt, we don't we don't see eye to eye on everything. But, you know, he he expresses himself in a good way. He's got some good points. And, and so it engages people in government again and, well, and it, it makes them feel. Go ahead. Uh, one of the things in, along those lines that that is, I guess, relevant for the the election season season we just went through, um, you know, here in Alaska, we've, we've had this every 10 years, we have this opportunity to weigh in and say, is it time to have a constitutional convention? And um, that question, you know, is, is not a partisan question. It's, it's a question that is, is laid out in our constitution. It actually affords the people the opportunity to go back and say, is this still working for us or do we need to add or remove or change things uh, so it works better? And it, it amazed me to see just how much opposition came flooding into the state from outside and even from within uh, among you know members of our own community, this opposition to having a constitutional convention there was a lot of i believe personally a lot of fear-mongering about oh well this is a pandora's box that if we open this box you know um uh the the it's like giving access uh to the fox to the hen house and they're going to come in and steal everything from us but in reality when you look at the process of how how that uh a constitutional convention uh operates and organizes it is like a maximum expression in uh, in the in the sort of the, this this idea of how a republic should work, where you have citizen representatives. They're not they're not uh, going to serve terms as necessarily as senators or or uh, you know uh, members of the house, but they're just our our neighbors that are selected from each of our precincts, and they get together and they talk about what's working and what's not, and then they then they they provide basically a recommendation that then gets put on the ballot and we all get to weigh in on it, whether it's presented as an omnibus sort of uh, issue where we have to just vote the whole thing up or down or whether it's line item by line item for amendments and additions. And, and to me, when I look at uh, engaging and uh, exercising my civic power as one of those people in we, the people, I look at that and say, why wouldn't you want that? You know, and, and similarly in the primaries we had here in the borough, we had the opportunity to vote up or down the addition of new assembly seats and new school district seats. 
And, you know, there were a lot of people saying, well, I don't want to spend any more money on government. But I'm like, wait a second. You know, um, if you feel underrepresented or you feel like um, like uh, any frustration at, at how these bodies operate, it's probably because you feel like they don't represent your philosophy or ideas or, or desires uh, for governance. And, and how do you get that kind of representation? Well, create more seats and it's more likely we're going to get a more uh, representative assembly or representative school board. And, um, and that was, I know, one of the issues that people were promoting through the Constitutional Convention, that we set up our legislature in a way uh, at, at the, the founding of our state where we have these 40 House members and, and 20 Senate members, and that that number hasn't changed, even though Alaska has grown in population. And, and that uh, as the population grows, your representation is diluted because now there's more people putting pressure on that single position that, uh, than, than was designed in the beginning. And so um, when we talk about grand jury, it's the same thing. Why wouldn't you want to restore the power of the grand jury when by its nature it is nonpartisan and it really is a pure, about the most pure reflection of our society, our culture, our, our neighbors, our values as Alaskans, whether you're right or left or center, why wouldn't you want that unless you just absolutely hate the country and, 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 and the philosophies that, that built it into such a great place? No, uh, you know, absolutely uh, in so many different regards, um, you know, the, we, we read in chapter two and chapter three how, you know, top top legal minds in the country uh, put, and, and even going back to English common law, you know, they, they put the grand jury up on the pedestal with the same stature of the legislature. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the legislator, tend, they tend to be, you know, more, uh, you know, they run and, and uh you know, they, they run for office and, and, you know, you look at our legislators and there's some that have been around a long time and, you know, the, whereas in the grand jury, it's just a temporary thing, but it, it's got the same kind of power that the legislature does. Um, it can't enact laws or anything, but it may, it investigates and it makes recommendations and, you know, something we haven't talked about yet. It's the finder of fact. Uh, whether whether uh, it's a criminal investigation or a civil investigation, the grand jury is charged with with finding the truth. The judge can't the judge can't say no no you know you you guys should have found this no it's the grand jury who is the finder of fact in these things and then they make recommendations based upon that so it's an integral part of our uh, of our government in the system of checks and balances and that's one of the problems that we. You know, people like David Haig find themselves in is is that the grand jury has been put under the thumb of the government and they don't fear it anymore. I mean, you know, you can look at what what, uh, you know, he's going through and what I'm going through. And it's it's very clear that that they don't fear it anymore. But the more people who listen to your podcast, Jason, and and start getting engaged and start understanding the power that they have, they're going to start fearing it. And they're going to wish that they had, you know, paid attention to it. 
Well, and, um, and how many how many of our friends and neighbors are totally disenchanted and feel disenfranchised by the political system, and they just they just refuse to participate anymore. They 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 don't vote. They don't pay attention. They get mad when you bring it up at, at dinner, or you know, uh, they're like, we don't talk religion or politics, you know, and and they're all kind of walking around hyper vigilant with this sort of like uh, traumatic PTSD, and they just you know they just shut down. As soon as you yeah, start why, talking why, about why politics. Talk, why, why talk about something that you can't control? You right. know, you're just going to get aggravated, right? But well, and you're so, exactly right. So this, is, this is, in my mind, this is a, uh, the grand jury is an altruistic answer to that problem. That uh, if, if you're going to treat PTSD with a, a therapeutic, you know, um, systems and responses and uh, bring that uh, bring that companion dog in, you know, and, and, and provides something soothing. What's more soothing than uh, an altru- altruistic response that's not motivated from a place of political preference, but from the diverse views of uh, those who live within your culture and uh, truly reflect uh, the nature of a place. Um, I just, I'm, I'm continually amazed when people just unplug and disassociate and then become unhappy because there's, they, they see no solution. This solution, whoever, whoever first thought of this was a, a flipping genius. Well, you know, it goes, it goes back to our, our founders, uh, you know, the colonists who, who came over here and carved out a life, uh, you know, back in the early 1600s. And uh, it was an integral uh, part of government and, and it's how citizens addressed problems. You know, because like, like you mentioned in, in, you know, a few minutes ago, you know, if you've got 10,000 or 15,000 people who, um, you know, have a single legislator, it's really hard to get your voice heard. You, you know, you may have the greatest legislator in the world or in the state, but with 15,000 of you, you know, all pining in, it's going to be difficult. So uh, people just, you know, and, and I was one of these people, you know, I hated politics with a passion because I'm like saying, what does it mean? You know, it, it uh, you can't do anything. And uh, but I'm becoming a believer <laughs> in politics again with with the grand jury involvement, because it is a way uh, for citizens to uh, become engaged uh, and, and to have a voice in government. And like you mentioned, to to have friendly conversations at the dinner table and at the poker game about politics again, because we can make a difference and it is the court of public opinion. So. Yeah, it, it's um, and it's and this is you know when you mentioned altruistic, um, this is not um, this is this is tried and true. This isn't some theory. Uh, this has actually been tried and true and and tested for for centuries, and it's come through flying colors every time. And so uh, this is just a tremendous uh, resource for for us to get back in our state. Well, we have uh, exhausted our time uh, for this episode. And uh, what I'd like to do is just encourage you to look at uh, how the founders arrived at this system. They came from a system of tyranny. They came from a system of abuse. And it is through necessity that 
they invented or refined this idea of the grand jury. So, raise a glass, raise a toast to the future of liberty. As we all regroup, re-engage, maybe learn something, and start talking to each other again. You've been listening to the Amokan Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon, special episode number four with David Ignell. Uh, We look forward to you joining us again for episode five of a 14-episode series, and uh, we're just uh, glad you're taking the time to care a little bit about the place we call Alaska. Have a great day, everybody.